Well, hey, it's good to be back. It's good to be here with you. Um, it's, honestly, it's, it's kind of surreal. I pulled up into the parking lot in the back here, and I felt like I, had, like I was a middle schooler that moved to a new city and was going to a, a different middle school for the first time. Like, what am I going to find when I get in there? And that's pretty weird, and the truth is, is it is different. Um, things feel a little bit different around here. Three months, a lot of things have happened. Um, for the most part, I had no idea what was going on, so this week I sort of got like everything dumped on me, which was, you know, it is what it is, I guess. Um, but it's good to be back. Um, the best thing about it is that you're here, um, and I appreciate the fact that you're actually here. If I'm being totally honest, um, I thought about this day a lot and wondered if there would be anyone still here when I came back, and, and so it's just awesome that you are. Um, I get this question constantly, or have all week long, I um, started getting it about three weeks ago, um, and then it was like, do you feel like you're ready to come back? Um, and then the, over the last week, it's been, right, how you feel about being back? And it would be nearly impossible for me to like, quantify how I feel coming back and to answer a question that's like, so filled with layers. Um, the other question I keep getting all the time is, what did you do for three months? Which is a totally valid question. And, and so I've just got like a little summary for you, like a week-by-week week summary, all right? So week one. Um, was dominated by that feeling that I forgot something. You know, like in Home Alone, when she's the mom sitting on the plane, and she can't remember what she forgot, and then she remembers, and she yells out super loud. The whole first week, I felt like I had moment after moment like that, like I forgot something. I didn't do something. I was supposed to tie up some loose end, and it didn't happen, and it was just constant panic attack. Um, I literally uh, did that 20 times a day for like an entire week. Um, week two... Um, in week two, I became like an expert thumb twiddler because I just, I was stir crazy, to say the least. Week three, um, I was still a little bit stir crazy, um, so I decided to go camping. Um, it was 96 degrees at midnight. Not my best decision, but Neil and I had some seriously awesome male bonding time. Um, it was the first sort of getting away. The mics joined us for a night of camping, and it was, it was good to be gone. We had to sit in the water the entire day or else we would have literally fried um, so that was fun. I didn't camp anymore the rest of the time. <laughs> um, I actually went into this thing, I'm going to go camping a lot just to like get alone, and I didn't camp anymore. That's why. Um, week four, I delete all social media from my phone, thinking it will allow me to disconnect. It worked, sort of. Um, week five, I'm still not sleeping on Saturday nights and wake up every Sunday morning feeling like I'm in a twilight zone, but it's okay because we started watching the ABC TV drama Lost, and so I sort of felt like I was in the show. Like, any Lost fans in the room? I know it's an old show. We're just getting on board. Not very many. You should watch it. It's crazy. But it felt like my life in week five. Week six, we hit the road for California, and for the first time in six weeks, I go to sleep on a Saturday night, unaware that the next morning at 8.30, some of my Finding Life friends will be meeting to load up a trailer um, and do church. There is hope for me. Um, I'm connecting with my family, making memories, and finding some Respite from constant grind of life and ministry. Um, I'm talking to and enjoying my wife more than I have in years. Um, that was an incredibly cool um, thing to realize. Also, In-N-Out Burger is not overrated, and Universal Studios is awesome. Um, week seven, I wake up on a beautiful San Francisco Sunday morning without a care in the world. It's quiet. It's still dark. There's kids and dogs sleeping all around me. If you don't know, my parents live in like a 500-square-foot apartment in San Francisco, and at one point, there were like 13 of us there all sleeping on their floor. Um, it's dark, I make the mistake of going on Facebook only to discover that we have a new motto at Finding Life, 
we're not a trailer. <laughs> of all mornings that I decide to go on Facebook. Um, yeah. So, so I, I called Travis like immediately. I'm like, what happened? That was also a mistake. Um, so a few steps back in my like, process or journey towards actually disconnecting. Um, but at the same time, it was, it was really incredible like, to, to hear through the grapevine how people stepped up, and in particular Travis, um, our leaders as a whole, but Travis and the way he carried the burden, um, the way he led incredibly well. Um, I'm so thankful. Like, I know that, yeah, absolutely. Um, and all of our leadership and the way that, the way that you guys stepped up and, and just, you know, I saw a few more Facebook posts that day and, and everybody was just like, who cares, you know? Well, there's a reason to care, but at the same time, the church is not a building, it's not a trailer. We've talked about that so much. So it was good to sense that. It was, it was good to feel that. Um, week eight, Amory and I wake up on a Sunday morning and walk to the San Francisco Farmer's Market. Um, I don't think about church at all, but we literally fought the entire way there and the way back, which reminded me that even on sabbatical, I am a broken human train wreck. Um, week nine, I spend a week somewhat alone in San Francisco for the first time. I begin dreaming and praying again. It's the first time my soul feels free um, or truly alive um, in what feels like a couple of years. On week 10, we get home. School is starting. It's really fun to be able to shop and prepare with Anne-Marie and be completely in the moment with her and the kids instead of what I typically do in the fall right before school starts, a strategic plan about how we can leverage this new season for momentum at Finding Life Church. Um, that was on the back burner. I didn't even think about it. And being in the moment with them has been really good. Probably the, the best byproduct for me personally in this over the last three months was just connecting with my family and being with my family in ways that I haven't in a real long time. Um, week 12, um, I'm sorry, week 11, I start getting some projects done around the house that are long overdue and begin to consider the question, what does God have next for Finding Life Church? It's, it's fun. I feel free. I feel disconnected. I'm unconcerned about what I am missing I've officially discovered total rest. I felt like week 12 is about when that happened. Um, I realized that's like three months. But I was gone for, for 14 weeks, so you know, I had just in the nick of time. Um, week 13, uh, I spend a week with my family and some friends in Minnesota. It's beautiful. For the first time, I get through the entire, an entire weekend without thinking about church once. It was literally like 3.30 in the afternoon when I realized, hey, it's Sunday. And it was like, whoa, I like mission accomplished. I actually did it with one week to spare. Week 14, I'm back, but easing my, my way in, I spend some time with our leadership and immediately feel the pressure of ministry creeping back in. I, I wanted to run away. I wondered if I was supposed to come back at all. And I know that's not what you wanted to hear, but that's the honest truth. Um, I'm ultimately reminded that that we live in this imperfect world surrounded by imperfect people, which I am one of. Um, I, I've had a conversation with one of our leaders over text about a week ago that really like, brought me to a place where I, was, I felt like, yeah, I want to be part of this. I want to do this thing. And, and I don't even remember exactly what we were talking about, but the bottom line was um, I was talking to a person that reflected the, heart, the heartbeat of why Finding, Finding Life Church started to begin with, um, that we would be people who bridged the gap between the world and this, this God that seems far away um, by living out his values in real life, um, connecting people with the heart of God in real relationship with him. Um, I do, I feel rested. I feel at peace. I am thankful um, for so many different things. 
Um, and I'm thankful for the time away. And so thank you to you for allowing me to do that. One thing over the course of the last um, week and a half, two weeks, that's sort of like, like stuck in my heart, in my mind, um, was this idea about the kingdom. Um, what is the kingdom? What is it about? Um, why do we care about the kingdom? Um, and and I, over and over I kept thinking to myself, um, we're not here to do church, we're here to do the kingdom. I can't get passionate about this. And I'm a really passionate guy that gets passionate about things very, very quickly. But at the end of the day, gathering together and meeting in a building like this and singing songs, um, like without the kingdom, it's like void of any meaning. And it feels very useless and actually kind of weird when you think about it. Um, so this, this idea of the kingdom just was stirring in my heart and my head. And, and God took me to Matthew chapter 13, which has been uh, very much like a life shaping or ministry shaping uh, verse or passage for me, starting in verse 44. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold every, everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and bought it. This is Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven is what it's called. And it's sort of like weird language because it's all metaphorical, right? He's, just, he's trying to convey value for something. And he's talking about this thing called the kingdom of heaven, which we have no categories for. We don't know what that means. We don't know what that looks like. Um, but for years, it's in, informed my perspective. I've always wanted and asked God, uh, direct my heart, make me a person whose life and heart reflects this. That I live my life for one thing, that I live for what matters most, the kingdom of heaven. We're going to spend the next like six weeks talking about this idea of the kingdom because I think it starts here. This church thing that we're doing, man, I love it. It's something I've given my life to, but ultimately at the end of the day, gathering in a building isn't enough. The kingdom has to be what it's, what it's all about. I can tell you this right now. The small C church, the local gathering of God's church, I love it as much as anything else in the world, but it comes and goes. It gathers and then it scatters. There's big ones and there's small ones. There's house ones and there's whatever this is, school ones, right? It's not about that. It's about the big C church. It's about what God is doing globally in, in the lives of people who are broken all over the world. And that's the one thing we all have in common is that we're broken outside of a relationship with God. But restoration can come in the context of the kingdom of heaven. And that's why it matters so much. The kingdom of heaven, as it pertains to our lives right now, is not a place. When we hear the word heaven, we naturally think place. We think like future, right? And uh, without getting too deep into like the, the language of all of this, here's what I want you to understand. It's not really a thing. It's tough to quantify. I think that's what, why Jesus is using these strange illustrations like a mustard seed and, and a pearl and a field and a treasure hidden in that field. Uh, the bottom line is the kingdom is sort of like a space between. The kingdom is the intersection of God and broken humanity. It's where heaven and earth collide. It's a moment in time where brokenness, pain, and hurt are swallowed up in the power of pure love, grace, and compassion. Connect with that for a minute. The kingdom of heaven is not something we're waiting for. The kingdom of heaven is now. It's something that God wants to do now in our lives every day. And I began to realize as I reflected on this that this is what's sort of been lost for me. The kingdom of heaven became something that I was sort of anxiously waiting for and like trying to strategically plan out. But I can't do that. The kingdom is, is what happens when a person looks at brokenness in the world and chooses 
to willingly sacrifice to live for its, res its restoration and redemption instead of being content with its destruction. It breaks my heart when I hear Christians talk about um, this world like it has no value because that is, that is utter garbage. This world and the people in it in particular hold utmost value to our Savior. That is the kingdom. This is what's worth living for. The kingdom of heaven happens when the heart of God pours out of a human life having a rarely seen restorative effect on the fractured people around them. That is the kingdom of heaven, and we can bring that here in the, in the everyday moments of our lives. The kingdom can actually happen now. After three months, I've become convinced that it isn't about changing stuff. You know, I, I left thinking, three months ago, I left thinking something has to change at Finding Life. That's why I'm doing this. There's this thing that I'm going to discover, and it's going to be like the domino that we push over that's going to be like the magic button. And I can tell you, like, three months later, I have no clue what that thing is. But I do know that it's all about the kingdom, and I became increasingly more convinced that it's about deeper clarification about what matters most, a willingness to sacrifice for that thing and be creative about how we bring the kingdom to earth. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking with his disciples again. Um, the men who would shape the church that we know, they would shape the ministry of the gospel at the very early, like, onset of it. Um, and they ask him, they start asking him questions, and they essentially ask him, what should we pray for? And they're asking this question with absolutely no concept of what he might answer, and I'm quite certain that what he said, like, went completely over their heads. But it's incredibly powerful. You know it as the Lord's Prayer. It gets repeated. You probably have it memorized, but the big question is, do you have any idea what God is actually after? What Jesus is really saying and it starts out like this. Our Father, Jesus says, this is how I want you to pray. He says, say, our Father who, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In essence, what Jesus is saying here is, is pray that your lives will be used to make earth look a little bit more like heaven than when you found it. Become people who create that space between where the restorative nature of the kingdom can have its way with people's lives, with the brokenness of our lives. This is what the Lord's Prayer is about. The kingdom of heaven on earth. On earth as it is in heaven, in Omaha as it is in heaven, in my school, in my work, in this restaurant, in this baseball game, as it is in heaven. This teaching moment is, is really saying two things. The kingdom of heaven is accessible to you all the time. It's accessible, it's there. And it's saying, my desire is that your lives on earth create a window into heaven for people to experience the power, the grace, the love, mercy, restorative effects of the creator of the universe in deep personal relationship with him, intimacy with him. When Jesus said on earth as it is in heaven, it was an invitation to you, to me, to believe that this world is valuable. It is worth fighting for. It's worth loving. Eugene Peterson authored like uh, a translation of the Bible that's like really common language. It's, it's like written like a story. It's called The Message. And he says this, he quoted this, um, the church is a colony of heaven in a country of death. Imagine if we actually reflected that, looked that way. Are we living in a country of death? Absolutely. We look around at the destruction in our world, the pain, the suffering, the, the hurt, the hopelessness, 
the loneliness that exists all over. And here we are, planted right down in the middle of it, being told on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Are we living like a colony of heaven in a world of death? And that rings true in my heart. So the question becomes, if we are called to live out the kingdom on earth, then why doesn't the earth look like the kingdom if we're filling it? The kingdom doesn't happen by accident, and I think that's why. This truth started to like swirl in my head when I read this tweet from, from one of my favorite authors. Her name is Deb Hirsch. She says, it was like in response, it was like a holiday weekend, I think like Labor Day weekend, um, where she knew like everybody's going to be like getting together and grilling stuff and eating lots of food. And she said this, break bread with someone new today. Include them in your meal. There are so many lonely people out there looking for somewhere to belong. That's the kingdom. Understand this? It's strangers being made into neighbors. It's lonely people being brought into relationship. But here's the problem. We default to comfort, right? The kingdom isn't comfortable. Having a stranger at your dinner table on Labor Day is not comfortable, is it? Inviting lonely, broken people into our lives, it's not comfortable, We default to comfort all the time. Here's the reality. The kingdom is accessible, and God is calling us to be kingdom bearers, but it does not come natural. In fact, every instinct we have will push away the kingdom because the kingdom is different. It's unique. It's even a little bit scary. Being God's people is about looking at the brokenness in our world and not remaining indifferent to it, but seeing it as our job, our calling to shine light into dark places, to become agents of restoration in a world that seems bent on destroying itself. And all of us are empowered to do that. And it is so simple. And and over the next five weeks, we're going to get really practical about how we become those people. Maybe in your head you're thinking like, how, how can I change the world? Our job isn't to change the world. It's to bring the kingdom of heaven into the very next moment of our lives. And then do that again for the rest of our lives, as often as we possibly can. Kingdom people are redeemers, restorers, life givers, hope bringers. We heal men to build up and support. We're called to give, to open up, to see, and to listen to people. We are kingdom people. The thing is, the kingdom doesn't come natural. It doesn't happen by accident. That's our truth for this morning. It's at the top of your worship flyer if you got one of those. The kingdom doesn't happen by accident. So as people saved by grace to live graciously, if we don't get clear on what matters, creative about how to accomplish it, sacrificial in our relationships, all with a focus on being intentional with every resource, relationship, and moment of our lives, we simply won't see the kingdom, that sacred space, happen in our lives, in our community, and we just let it lay dormant. I believe that the church is a sleeping giant, And when I say sleeping, I mean like snoring because we've lost sight of the calling on our lives. The kingdom of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. I I believe that God wants to take the city of Omaha and way beyond and make it look a little more like heaven than it did yesterday. And that's the calling on our lives. That's what God wants from us. We're going to dive, like I said, we're going to dive deeper into like more specifics on this whole kingdom thing and exploring what, what, is, what did Jesus really mean when he said on earth as it is in heaven? What is this kingdom thing? We're going to dive into that more. Um, but I want to take a step back and talk about um, kind of laying a foundation in our hearts, um, in our lives for what, where we move. Like what does God want from us? It's really the heart prep we got to do to begin the conversation about how to live out 
the kingdom. Jesus said, pray like this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the kingdom doesn't happen by accident. So um, there's three things on your outline that I think it begins with for us. If we don't look closely and consider our own hearts in relation to the kingdom, in relation to this stuff, we cannot become people that live it out. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can open it, you can open your phone, whatever. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is what we're going to be looking at um, for the rest of our time today, verses 19 to 27. While you're getting there, like a little side note, um, when I was 11 years old, I played on a football team um, that the coach like, wanted to have devotions um, before every practice. And he one, one day, like I don't know, he knew my dad was a pastor. One day he's like, um, hey, next week will you do it? And like, this was the very first passage I ever taught to a group of people. And I was 11 years old, and I guarantee it was terrible. And I was scared out of my mind. And, and if I could journey back to 11 and you tell me that I'd be up here someday, I would have like, run away as far as I possibly could. Um, so that's pretty interesting. Anyway, side note, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 27. I'm just going to read. This is Paul talking um, to Christians um, and Greeks in, uh, in the, the, the city of, of Corinth. He says this, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to everyone, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, the the law, though not being under the law myself, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without law, though not being without the law of God myself, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without the law. It's like really wordy language. He's basically saying, whoever you are, I'm going to be like you, so that I can show you who God is in a context that you're going to understand. It's that simple, okay? Um, He goes on, to those, uh, sorry, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I, might, I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? This is the football part. <laughs> that was a good message, I'm telling you. Um, so run in such a way as to win Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This passage screams two things. It's all about the kingdom, and it won't happen by accident. Two things. Right? Paul is utterly convinced that there's really only one thing in life worth giving your life for. And when he discovered it, it was like, man, he was, he was nuts about it. I mean, just off the charts, like scary how completely and totally like all in this guy is. Like to a point that he doesn't care what anybody else thinks, right? It's all about the kingdom and you hear it and you, you feel it. But more than that, you sense that Paul is, ca- is calling and challenging people to like this intentionality that's kind of off the charts right? It's kind of crazy. Um, So there's really three things that I see that I think are absolutely vital to us becoming people who live out the kingdom in the everyday moments of our lives. Um, The first one is on your outline. It says this, it takes clarity. Clarity is a powerful thing. So much of the tension we live our lives with comes from a lack of clarity about lots of different things, every aspect of our lives, right? When you're clear on something and what you want, it's easy to make decisions, right? 
Finances become really easy when you have a plan, when you know what you want. It's a lot easier to say no to that thing when you have a goal, right? If you're like changing the way you're eating, if there's a reason you're doing that, it's easy because that reason, that, that thing, that purpose is worth it. You already decided it was worth it. That's Paul. He has utter clarity about what matters most to him. And that makes his life really, really easy, right? He's, basically, every situation he's in is really not about him. He says it like this, I've become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. And Paul is a living, he's a living example of this. We're not just talking about like, like eh, you know, I'll, I'll do what I need to do when I need to do it so that I can just sort of get by. Give me like the minimum that I got to do to, you know, just be good enough. He's, he's so all in that he has, he has taken his life and postured it for the thing that matters most. Clarity does that for us. Imagine living with this kind of clarity. He's so convinced. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I can be a partaker in it. Nothing else matters to him. Clarity happens when we experience the power of the kingdom in the, in the lives of real people. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've been in an environment where you could, like, something happened Something happened between people where the kingdom, like the light of the kingdom got shed there and you, you experienced it and so did everyone that was with you and you're like, whoa, whoa, that's crazy. I can't like give you that experience. I can't force you to do that. Um, the clarity comes the more we experience the power of God in real people's lives, transforming, redeeming, restoring. The only way that can happen is if we get if we choose to move into clarity, deeper clarity about what matters most, people finding Jesus, we say it all the time, people living life, experiencing the power of God in their lives. Number two, it takes creativity. Um, this word creativity is grossly misunderstood, I think, in our world today. Um, I hear it all the time, and it drives me nuts when I hear people say, I'm just not that creative. That's like pure garbage, okay? That is not true. Um, every single one of us was created to be creative. Life void of creativity cannot reflect the heart of Jesus. You were created to creatively reflect your creator's heart. Okay, that doesn't mean everybody's an artist. That doesn't mean everybody can draw cool pictures or sing like our awesome singers do. Right? Not everybody can do that, but you were made to be creative. I guarantee you if you did a personality assessment on Paul, he would not fall into the creative category. Okay, but what we see in these words in the in this passage is that he's like he's become this like dreamer. Create he's 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 thinking what can, what do I have to do? Every relationship he finds himself in, he's thinking how can I how can I show you how much God loves you? How can I show you? And he's willing to do whatever it takes. He's being creative. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To the weak, I became like the weak. Right? Every environment I'm in, I'm going to be creative about how I can bring the kingdom into your life. I watched Willy Wonka last, yesterday while I was smoking meat. Um, it's one of my favorite movies, and, and part of it is the way that the invitation that Willy Wonka gives. What's wrong with that? Because I say that a lot, don't I? First week back, I'm talking about movies. Um, I love the way he gives these kids permission to dream, right? So there's that scene where he walks, they walk into like the making factory, and it's like trees and and the, the river is made out of chocolate milk, and everything in there is edible. It's all candy. And he's singing this song called Pure Imagination. And the kids are just like lined up, like jaws almost on the floor, and he's singing this song, and he's about to like send them out, like let them loose into this like 
creative candy, like, heaven, right? And, and, and he, he sends them out, and they go, and they're eating everything and enjoying it, whatever else. As I was watching that, I realized this is the way that God wants to release us into the world, like lining us up and saying, look, there are kingdom spaces out there. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what I could do with your life if you would let me? To be willing to get creative about how to love people really, really, really well. Tuned in to what God wants to do. Just imagine. Pure imagination. It's an awesome, awesome scene. Um, Brian McKnight, 90s R&B singer. I like 90s (laughs) R&B. He sings this song that says, if you can dream it, you can do it. In his song, I Believe I Can Fly, which is is not true. (laughs) You cannot fly, okay? So don't go try. But there's something powerful about this idea, and, and I, like, I'm going to say this. Like, don't take this too far. If you can dream it, God can do it. That's true, especially as it relates to the kingdom. That doesn't mean if you dream about having a billion dollars that God can, well, he could do it if he wanted to, but he's not going to. So get over that. If it pertains to the kingdom, if you can dream it up, I believe God has called us to dream for people, for broken people, do we have dreams? When you watch the news and you see that, you, you that 100,000 more refugees want to come into, this, come into this country, are you sitting there thinking, no way, we don't want them? Or are you thinking, imagine how I could bring the kingdom to their lives, lonely, strangers. Guess what? The Bible actually talks specifically about those groups of people. Are we worried about protecting ourselves? Or are we creatively looking for opportunities to be kingdom people? Light into dark places. Hope where there's fear. Strangers into neighbors. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is what he meant on earth as it is in heaven because guess what? In heaven, there's there's only one citizenship. What if God wants something different from us? This is not a political sermon. Please don't make it that. It's about our own hearts and lives. I'm not asking you to go call your congressman. I'm asking you to look at your own heart, my own heart, Am I a kingdom person? Am I willing to get creative to bring the kingdom to earth? Because dang, that requires a lot of imagination. Because guess what? In the kingdom, lame people walk. And blind people see. Poor people are rich. Hungry people are full. Lonely people are connected deeply in relationships. They belong. A kingdom person is dreaming for people that cannot dream for themselves and finding creative ways to connect broken people with the healing power of God, only in these kingdom spaces that God has, has positioned you to create in the lives of the people that you live and work and play with. Every single day, we got to be clear about what matters most. we got to get creative about how we're going to become uh, kingdom space creators. And three, it takes intentionality. The kingdom doesn't happen by accident. That's what Paul is really saying here. The last part of that, it's not about being like better at sports, right? It says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Paul is not a sports fan. Okay, that's not what's going on here. He's talking to a bunch of Greeks who love to race. That's what's going on. They love the Olympics, and they train really, really hard to be really, really fast so they can win. And so he's coming to them and he's saying, listen, the kingdom is so much better than that. 
understand this, but at the same time, connect with how hard you're willing to work to win that wreath. And he's saying, guess what? Man, the kingdom is so much better than that. It's a call to intentionality. It's, in, it's a call to recognize that this isn't going to happen by accident. It'd be like me saying, it'd be like me saying, you know, like, think about Michael Phelps, like the greatest Olympian that's ever lived, right? Michael Phelps' swimming workload, his workouts, um, require a 12,000-calorie diet. You've heard this before, right? Um, he swims a minimum of, of 80,000 meters a week, 50 miles a week. Um, he eats 12,000 calories a day, 4,000 calories per meal. This is, this is one meal for Michael Phelps. One. Just go ahead and look at... The guy, the guy knows what he wants, and he does... I mean, this is, that looks kind of fun. But the swimming part, I don't need that, right? 50 miles a week because he knows what he wants, and he's done that for how many years of his life? And journey back to last, this year he was crazy dominant. It was so fun to watch him, best shape of his life, right, all that. Remember the Olympics before when he was like a shell of the guy that we saw four years before that? It's because he stopped training. This is what Paul is talking about. He's saying this matters too much to stop being intentional, to stop training your body, to stop caring about who you are. And I think the, bit, like the scariest thing for the church is when we become complacent or indifferent. We become people that stop seeing, that stop noticing, that stop listening to other people. We become these like self-centered, almost accidentally, we're so wrapped up in our own lives and what we're doing and, and what we're supposed to look like that we, for, we, we, we forget that we're living in a world full of people who need, they need to experience grace. They need to have genuine relationships. They need somebody to believe in them. Tell them they're worth something. And we walk past them all day long as they think about how worthless they are. And we are kingdom people. This isn't that simple, but it requires a crazy amount of clarity, creativity, and intentionality. Do you not know that those who run in a race, all run, but only one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you might win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way, I run in such a way as to win. God has placed us here, and, in, and he wants us to win. He wants us to win when it comes to the things that, matters, that matter most. And so what is a win? We're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. What does it mean to win in the kingdom? And it's way simpler than you might imagine. But here's the reality. This passage is creating a very uncomfortable challenge for us. Because the bottom line is that most of us aren't even close to positioned to begin living our lives in a way that creates kingdom spaces. We have some like relationship management to do probably. Because the church as a whole, I mean, you know and I know, the reputation is pretty scary. It's not good in the world. It's because we haven't lived this way for so long. But this is just for your own reflection, just three questions that I think are coming out of these verses. Are you running the race of life as it matters more than anything else in the world, as if it matters more than anything else in the world? Are you as passionate for the kingdom of heaven as you are for building your own kingdom? I'm asking myself these questions too. Keep that in mind. Are you willing to consider 
what it might look like to become a person that lives life for the sake of creating those sacred spaces of the kingdom. I got to tell you, like side note, it, it might sound scary, it might sound really hard, it is so much fun. It is so much fun to create spaces for people to experience who God really is. What his heart is really like. We live in a world that people are, are, are compl- have no clue who the heart, what the heart of God is and their perception is frightening. And we get to introduce them to something completely different. It's fun to create spaces where people can experience him. This isn't about changing people. This isn't an agenda. The only agenda we have is creating space for people to feel valuable, for the gospel to take root in their hearts and in their lives. But are we willing for the sake of creating sacred spaces, the kingdom in the lives of broken people all around you? The kingdom of heaven is worth living for and nothing else really is. We get distracted by other things, but that is the reality But here's the thing, it does not happen by accident. It takes clarity about what matters, creativity about how to accomplish it, and intentionality to keep our eyes on that ball, daily moving deeper into a lifestyle of creating kingdom space. It's in the kingdom spaces that people experience the presence and the power of God. God chose you. He wants to use you. And whether you know it or not, you are uniquely positioned to become a window into the kingdom of heaven for people all around you. All around you. Getting intentional about becoming kingdom space creators is crucial to living as a follower of Jesus in the everyday moments of our lives. And we're going to sing this song um, in just a second. And it's all about the brokenness of the world. And the answer is grace. And that's it. Amazing grace that you carry with you. I carry with me. And we can choose to like lavish it out on the people all around us and create those kingdom spaces. Allow the gospel to transform lives where we can.